God, we thank you that you have no rival, you have no equal. God, that you are sovereign and alive and working. So God, we trust in you. God, we trust in you more than we trust in ourselves and more than we trust in uh, what's happening around us. We trust in you. God, be with us this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, this time to worship. We thank you for uh, the end of this year and the beginning of a new one. God, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome. You guys can have a seat. It's the last Sunday of 2020, right? No amens? No amens? Not enough? Okay. Should have gotten a lot more amens on that one, to be honest with you. If you have a Bible, open with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes. Kind of in the middle of your Bible, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. We'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. I'll give you just a bit to turn there. Good to be with you guys. Missed being with you last week. Let me read this for us, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Traditionally, this book is attributed to King Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, known in this book as the preacher or the teacher. And he writes this, chapter 3. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. There is a time to be born and a time to die. There is a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. There's a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow. There's a time to keep silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. And then the preacher asks in verse 9, what gain has the worker from all his toil? He's looking around and trying to make sense of this world. He's trying to make sense of these different seasons in life, trying to understand what God is doing. He says, I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Indeed, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he's put eternity into man's heart. And yet, so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should just eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. He says in verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is has already been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. God, again, we thank you for this word. We thank you 
that you are sovereign over the seasons of our life, and God, we trust you. I pray that you'd speak to us. God, I pray for all of us as we try to make sense of the different seasons of life. God, that we would look to you, that we would look to your word, that we would trust your spirit to lead and guide us into truth. So God, we rest in that this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. This passage in Ecclesiastes, especially these first eight verses, are uh, some of the most well-known well-known uh, verses in all of Scripture. Some of you guys may even remember this song. Let me play a song for you, see if this is ringing uh, any bells here. Do we have this, maybe? You guys feeling that? Okay. I know you are back there, I can tell. Yeah. That's right. Sir, we're worshiping now, right? We got the birds. While I was reading this, you were probably humming along even to this song, right, for many of you. That song went number one in 1965. Not all of you were alive in 1965. I certainly was not alive in 1965, but uh, I, know, I know many of you remember this. not often that, uh, that, that words taken verbatim from Scripture end up number one on the Billboard 100, but this time they made it from the birds in 1965. This is obviously a popular song. The, the, the lyrics of the song um, may be interpreted in a number of ways, but as a song, they're often... Um, performed as a plea for world peace, right? As in there's a time for, for war, but let this be a time for peace. In fact, the closing line of that song from the birds is, a time for peace, I swear, it's not too late. And this is likely many, uh, for many of us the way we understand this passage in Ecclesiastes, how we read it and interpret it. The idea being that there is a time for all sorts of things in this life, a time for us to do all kinds of things. And sometimes we need to laugh and sometimes we need to cry. Sometimes we need to speak up and sometimes we need to be silent. And then the goal then is really for us to figure out how to be wise enough to do the right things at the right time in the right way. But I don't think that's what the preacher is saying here. I don't think that's what the writer is getting at it's not just about there being a time for all sorts of things. It's about something bigger than that. When he writes in Ecclesiastes 3 verse 1, for everything there is a season. That word season in Hebrew is the word zeman, which is a specific kind of season. It's an appointed time. It's a, it's a sovereign time. This is part of God's specifically appointed purpose or plan. This, is, this, this word implies a certain kind of intentionality. That God chose this appointed season. It was appointed by God in his sovereign plan and according to his sovereign purpose. In fact, this whole section really of Ecclesiastes really points to and reminds us that God is the one who appoints the different times and seasons in our life. We see there in verse 11 what God has done 
from beginning to end. This is, this is a passage about what God is doing in the different seasons of our life. This is about his, his appointed times, his intentionality and sovereignty. We see there in verse 14, whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it or taken away from it. Of course, we have free will as individuals. God has created us with free will, and we can choose whether to cry or not cry or to kill or not kill or to tear down or not. But God is the one ultimately in control. God is the one ultimately sovereign over all of these moments and these seasons that we go through in life, whether seasons in our family, seasons in relationships, seasons at work, seasons of ministry, different seasons of life. These seasons are appointed by God. This idea is repeated throughout all of Scripture. This is one of the dominant themes in all of the Bible. Let me just read you a few verses here. Psalm 115 verse 3, and this may be a little bit difficult for us to hear. Our God is in heaven and he does all he pleases. In Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of a man plans his way, but it is the Lord who establishes his steps. In Proverbs 19, 21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. In Job 12, 23, it's the Lord who makes nations great, and he destroys them. He enlarges them and then leads them away. The Lord is sovereign not only of individuals. He's sovereign over countries and nations and peoples and planets. Job 14.5, many are the days, uh, man's days are determined before him. The number of his months is with you, O God. You have appointed its limits and he cannot pass. And one more, and this is a bit more sobering for us. Isaiah 45 verse 7, the Lord says, I form light. And I form darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. We serve and worship and bend our knee to a sovereign God. This, this passage that we just read in Isaiah and, and the passage that we're focusing on this morning in Ecclesiastes, it's about God's sovereign control over each moment of our lives. The seasons in our life that we go to are appointed for us by a sovereign God. And so for me, as I consider that reality, I feel like the obvious question is, well, then why? Why such suffering in the world? Why such pain? Why, why are so many seasons so hard for so many if God is loving and all-powerful. One uh, writer, David Hume, who was an 18th century Scottish uh, philosopher and skeptic, uh, he, he put this question famously this way. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is weak. Is God able to prevent evil but not willing? Then he himself is evil. Is he both able and willing? Well, then why such suffering? Why such suffering? This is an important question. This, this question becomes very real for us and very, uh, very widely asked when something especially terrible or confusing happens in our lives or something terrible and confusing 
happens in this world. A tragedy strikes or our family experiences some suffering or sudden sense of loss or pain and we collectively ask, where is God in all of this? It's often hard to see. Maybe even now some some of you are asking this question, where is God? Where is God in this pandemic? Where is God in this sense of loss? Where is God in, in all of this pain and confusion that we're experiencing even as a nation? Maybe you're asking that question because of your own suffering. Maybe you're asking that question because of the collective suffering that we're experiencing together. And you wonder, why, why, would, God, why would God appoint this season? And maybe this season isn't the season that you're wondering about. But you can look back at your own lives, right? You can look back at your own lives in those moments and say, I don't, I don't know why God appointed that season. Or at least when I was in that season, I couldn't imagine why God would appoint this moment, or this kind of pain. You guys may remember the story. I've I've used this illustration before. In 2004, uh, there was this massive tsunami off the coast of Sumatra in Indonesia. It killed, very swiftly, 200,000 people across 14 countries along the coast of the Indian Ocean. And uh, immediately following uh, that, that tragedy, that natural disaster, uh, one writer in the New York Observer, he wrote this in 2005, echoing David Hume. He says, if God is God, then he can't be good. If God is good, then he can't be God. You just can't have it both ways, he writes, after we experience something like this Indian Ocean tragedy. It just seems so senseless. It seems so hard to make sense of for us, we just don't see it. And yet, that quote from the writer of the New York Observer, it betrays a kind of arrogance for us. As Tim Keller put it in his book, Reason for God, just because you can't imagine a good reason for God to do something doesn't mean there isn't one, right? I was talking to my aunt yesterday. Many of you know uh, a fellow church member, my grandma, Linda, Uh, has been diagnosed with COVID and she is hospitalized now, had to be intubated this week. And and frankly, things aren't looking good for her. So be be in prayer for her if you think of her. I know many of you have asked and I very much appreciate that. Um, I was talking to my aunt, her daughter, yesterday uh, and and about things sort of not looking good. And my aunt said, uh, she didn't know I was preaching this, but it makes for a good illustration. My aunt said, you know, I, I, I trust God in this moment. I trust that he has a plan even if I don't see it. And she said, actually, more than that, I trust that God has a plan even if I don't like it. That's true, right? Just because I don't see it doesn't mean there isn't one. Just because I don't like it doesn't mean it's not even good for me. But suffering is never easy. It's a burden that we all share. This, this, this year, 2020, has been really in some ways unprecedented, at least for most of the people who are currently alive, in that it is not only a national kind of burden, it is a global burden that we're all sharing differently. And of course, it affects all of us in very different ways, but it has affected all of us. Now, the simple answer to the very complex question, why does God allow evil in this world, is unfortunately, I think, a very unsatisfying one, which if I'm honest, I will have to say, I don't know why. I don't know why all the evil exists in the world. It's hard to make sense of. 
It's hard to understand how God weaves these things together for our good and for his glory. But I can trust that he does. And in fact, God doesn't have to justify himself to us. Scripture says in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord. In fact, it says in Proverbs 25, it is the glory of God to conceal things. We don't get to know it all. We don't get to see the puzzle all put together. There are mysteries in this world that we cannot understand. The sooner we come to terms with that fact, the better for us all. And if God is God, if God is the the ultimate sovereign creator of the universe, knower of all things, perfectly right and perfectly wise in all that he does, if God is truly God, then of course we can't fully understand what he's doing because we are not. Of course, his rationale would be beyond our rationale. Of course, his reason would be beyond our reason. Just as the prophet says, Isaiah, he says, his, his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He does things differently than we would do them. Thank God. If God is God, he is not bound by our limited and finite understanding of concepts like love, and power. He defines love and power, not us. And of course, just because we can't understand it or make sense of it doesn't mean God has no plan or purpose in it. In fact, church, it only means that we're not God. It only means that we don't know everything. That's what it means. It's a confession in and of itself that we are not God and that he is God. It is his glory to conceal things. And yet we we trust as his people. We trust that because he is God, he is a God who makes good on his promises. He is a God who has a a plan, a plan that's better than our plan. It's, It's deeper than our plan. It's more complete than the plans that we would make for ourselves. Anything that we might have fashioned based on our very limited and finite and fractured wisdom. And the God of the Bible seems to not only have a plan for the universe and a plan for history, but a plan for each, each one of us here. He has a plan for you. This is what the psalmist is getting at in Psalms 8. When he, he looks at, we, we covered the psalm a few months ago when we were going through some of the psalms through the summer. Uh, but the psalmist in Psalm 8 looks up at the heavens and he says, when I, when I look at the heavens, you know, just imagine yourself outside. Imagine yourself, and it was easy to do this morning at the early service because we could hear the birds. We could feel the sun on our faces. We could, we could sense the breeze across our faces and we could, we could get a sense of his creation. And the psalmist is there in Psalm 8 and he's, it's like he's looking up and he says, I look at your heavens. I look at the work of your fingers. Your, your fingertips are, are, are putting the, the moon in place and putting the, the stars in place. You've, you've put them just where you want them. Who am I that you are mindful of me? The son of man that you care for him. And that's the confession. Is that even when we look, even, even you are holding, you are holding the planets in line. You are holding, you are holding the universe together. You are holding all things together. You, your, your fingers are putting planets right where they need to be. And yet you care about our work and our families and our illnesses and our struggles. And you rejoice with us 
as we celebrate as well. Jesus would make this point too as sort of a corrective to his disciples in the Gospel of Luke um, where they would, and as if, you've read, if you read the Gospels, you understand that his disciples are very anxious kind of people, right? And he's trying to comfort his disciples and he says, you know what, if, if God uh, clothes the grass which is alive today in the field and tomorrow cast aside, how much more will he clothe you? He's talking about your clothes. You see how small and seemingly insignificant, but not for him. He cares about you. He cares about what you're doing. He cares when you're struggling, when you're in pain. And Jesus says, oh, you of little faith. So there's a real comfort there, but there's also a correction. There's also a kind of a rebuke, a loving rebuke, but a rebuke nonetheless. He's saying that you're, you're putting your faith in the wrong things. You have such little faith in me, the one who's actually sovereign and holding all of this stuff together. The preacher in Ecclesiastes asks, what gain has the worker from all his work? I've, I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's kind of looking around. He's like, I see all this stuff. People are busy with work. They're busy with their lives. Bad things are happening. Good things are happening. This is sort of a confusing business that we're all about. But I see, he says it in Ecclesiastes 3, that God has made everything beautiful in its time. Some of us need to hear that truth this morning, that he has made everything beautiful in its time, also, he has put eternity into the hearts of man. And yet, so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. There is beauty in the timing of everything that God does, and yet we're also promised that we're not always going to see that beauty. That's what he's saying there in Ecclesiastes 3. And there's a, there's a really interesting, this is a powerful few verses. There's a tension here of what God is saying. He's saying, on the one hand, that, that God has placed eternity in our hearts. What an interesting phrase that is, right? God has placed eternity in our hearts. What does that mean? It means, at least in part, that, that there, is, there is a sense in our souls of eternity, of things the way they should be, Right? There is a sense in our, in our gut, in our souls, of, of a kind of justice and rightness in this world. We, we understand when we come across pain and suffering that that's not how things should be, right? There is eternity in our hearts. There is a longing, there is a sense for a place beyond this place, of things better than the way things are here. And yet, we're promised that we're going to struggle to find the meaning of that. He's put eternity in our hearts, and yet, so that we cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. We struggle in the midst of pain and confusion and suffering to make sense of it all because we ourselves are not God. We only see, as it says here and elsewhere, we only see in part. We just see part of it, a very small part of it. One, one writer, uh, he's a, uh, Ronald Nash, he's a philosophy professor at Reformed Theological Seminary. He wrote in his book, Faith and Reason, uh, he said, very respected guy, he says, the most serious challenge to theism, the most serious challenge to a belief in God is, was, and will always be the problem of evil in the world. That, that was his 
position. That the, the most the most sort of confounding thing for Christians is how to if we believe in this good God, how can we make sense of this evil world? This is essentially what what David Hume in the 18th century was getting at. This is what the writer in the New York Observer was getting at following the Indian Ocean tragedy. That there's a, the problem of suffering is a difficult problem for Christians who believe in a sovereign God who is also a loving a loving God. But I wonder, I wonder how big of a problem that really is in light of Ecclesiastes. I wonder if it's actually a bigger problem for the atheist than for the Christians, this problem of evil and suffering. And C.S. Lewis kind of helps us get there. He himself was an atheist, an academic, uh, a literature professor at Oxford and Cambridge who, who famously came to faith, uh, sort of got reasoning himself there to a place of faith. And, and he asked this question too. He says, uh, I'll read it for you. He says, my argument against God, this is C.S. Lewis as an atheist. He said, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust, Right? You look at the world and you think, the world is, te- the world is terrible. There is so much pain and, and, and injustice and cruelty and abuse and terror. It's a bad place out there. How, how, could there, how can we, with any sense of rationality, confess in a sovereign and loving God, just look around, open the newspaper, right? Turn on the TV, you see it everywhere. And C.S. Lewis said, my argument against God was largely that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But then he asked himself this important question. But where did I get the idea of justice or rightness? Where did that come from in me, this sense that things were not right in the world, right? That it's bad when children are abused, that it's bad when one nation terrorizes another or one people group terrorizes Another, we know that those things are bad. We sense that those things are bad. He says, what was I comparing the universe with when I called it unjust? There was something in me that had a sense of justice and rightness. He says, of course, I, have, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying that it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I gave up this sense of justice, then my argument against God failed too. He says, no, I couldn't do that. There was something more. He says, atheism seems to be just too simple. It's not dealing with the hard questions. In other words, the existence of evil and suffering, this sense in our souls that things are not right out there, is actually a stronger argument for the existence of God rather than an argument against the existence of God. How many of you long for something better than you're experiencing now? How many of you ache for the injustice in the world? How many of you are just longing for a sense of of peace inside or peace in this world? How many of you are are looking out at at, at sort of just all all the terror and feeling in your bones that that is not the way things should be? Where did that come from? Why do you think that? To what are you measuring it if you think something is unjust? Scripture says that God has put eternity in our hearts. There is this sense of justice in us, the sense of the way things should be, and we long for something better. If we're only a collection of cells, if that's all we really are, 
with no ultimate creator and no ultimate purpose, with no inherent dignity or no inherent value as humans, if we are really just living in a survival of the fittest kind of world, if there is no ultimate goodness or ultimate justice, then there's no real injustice. Genocide is only an injustice if there is an actual standard of justice that you should not mindlessly kill a group of people because of your power and dominance and ability over them. If there is no inherent value in human life, then what's wrong with abuse? But of course, because we all experience the pain of suffering, we can believe and know that there is something better than suffering. We can only know things aren't as they should be if there is actually a standard of things how they should be. This ache for eternity in our hearts. Suffering doesn't disprove God. The problem of evil doesn't disprove God. It, it proves at least that there is a longing in every human heart for something more. Living through difficult seasons in life exposes our longing for a sovereign and loving God. That ache we feel is for the eternity that we're made for. These various appointed seasons in our life, and they are appointed seasons in life, whether they are good or bad or tragic or beautiful, whether they are fulfilling for you or whether they are exhausting for you. They should lead us not to despair or to doubt, but to this greater sense and deeper trust in and worship of our God who is sovereign. It should compel us to him, the one who is sovereign over every single minute of our life and, and who, whose plans succeed or are so often fail. That's what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying. Look, at, look with me at verses 12 through 14. I perceive that there is nothing better than for the, the, the wisest man is looking at He says, there's nothing better for us than to be joyful, to do good as long as we live. Everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his work. That's God's gift to man. He says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken away from it. This is it. Verse 14, God has done it, why? So that people would fear before him. You see that there? He says, God is sovereign over all of these minutes. It is his glory to conceal these things. The response to this is so that God has done these things so that people fear before him. That we awe before him. That we worship before him. That we stand dependent and open-handed before him. That we say, you are the only one, God, who is over this moment. I am not over this moment. Our posture is one of humility and worship, of, of trust in his purposes. I often, you know, there, there are those times in life um, where you feel like whatever you're experiencing, whatever loss you're experiencing, or whatever tragedy or pain you're experiencing is, is just so senseless. You just, you just can't imagine how God could make anything good of it, right? 
something with your kids, something with your spouse, something with your health, something, a million things. You lose your job, you go bankrupt. There are those times in life where you just can't conceive of God making anything good from that mess. And in those moments for me, I, I'm, I'm always, my mind always goes to in that, in that feeling of despair where I think, I don't know how God's going to make anything good from this mess. My mind goes to the crucifixion. I think about the crucifixion of Christ. I think about the most tragic event in all of human history. The darkest moment in, in humanity's story, the, the, the unjust torture and the brutal murder of the perfect man, Jesus. That was the worst thing, the, most, the worst injustice, the, the deepest cruelty, the most, the most senseless act in the whole universe across time. And yet even this, this, this darkest moment, this most senseless moment is what God used to orchestrate to bring about our lasting joy, to save us. It's the, the, the worst thing in history is what God used to bring us eternal hope and joy, to bring him eternal glory. In, in, in Galatians 4, Paul says, in the fullness of time, at, at this appointed season, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we would receive adoption as sons and daughters. Paul will say something else in Romans 5. He'll say, for while we were still weak, just at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You see that? Paul's, Paul's using the same language of the preacher in Ecclesiastes. This, this, these seasons are appointed by him. This is not random acts of chaos. This is a sovereign God working in creation for his glory and for our joy. God uses everything at the right time and in the right way. He uses our health and he uses our sickness. He uses our, our wealth and he uses our poverty. He, he uses our peace and our depression. He uses our companionship and our loneliness. God used the sin of the Tower of Babel to uh, create new languages and cultures so that one day every, every tongue would confess that he is Lord in a multitude of tongues. God used Pharaoh's hard heart to deliver his people and bring himself glory. He used the Assyrians to punish Israel. He used Herod and Pontius Pilate and Judas to murder his own son Jesus. He does, he does all of this with great purpose for his glory and for our joy. Our, our posture need not be one of, of anxiety about the future, but security in God's plan. Not, not a posture of doubt, but a posture of faith. Not a posture of anger towards God about the injustice in the world. But humble worship at his feet. He does these appointed seasons. He, he, he enacts these appointed, appointed seasons to bring us to his feet in worship. David writes in Psalm 31, I, I, I hear the whispering of many. I, I see terror on every side that schemes are against me. But I trust in you. You are my God, David says. 
Church, I want to encourage you, even, even in this, even in this appointed season, God is sovereign and he is good. We trust him in the valley. We trust him at the summit. As we end, as we end 2020, and thank God we're ending 2020. As we end 2020 and as we, as we turn this page into this new year, let us rejoice let us rest, let us trust in God's sovereign plan, even and especially in a time such as this. Let me pray for us, church. God, we thank you for your sovereign guiding hand in the seasons of our life. And God, I pray that it would produce in us a posture of worship, not of, of, of worry or anxiety, or anger. God, we confess that many of us are worried. We confess that many of us are anxious. We confess that many of us are angry. Many of us are confused. I said, God, we need your word. We need this message to remind us that you are firmly seated on your throne. God, that you are, that you are holding the planets in place and you are clothing us, providing for our needs. God, be with us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.